Fulfillments. We talked about it in chapter 37. The fulfillment of Israel rising up again as a nation out of the dry bones in the, in the, uh, in the desert wasteland. What has happened to Israel today? For those of us that have been there, we have seen a land that at one time was completely desolate and waste, now fruitful, bearing fruit, green, most cases. You know, there is no true study of Bible prophecy if Israel is not at the center of it all. And you can't even treat Israel as some people do as a token player in the end times, or even worse, as those who would hold to what is called replacement theology, having Israel replaced by the church to receive all the blessings. Israel no longer gets blessings according to them, but the church is to receive all the good blessings. And what's really wrong about that particular theology and thinking is that the Lord was very clear to say, well, we're not only dealing with blessings, but we're also dealing with curses. And Israel has received those in their life. And yet he all, Israel has also received the promise that God would restore them again. That's very clear in scripture. So those who hold to replacement theology have replaced Israel with the church saying that modern Israel has no place whatsoever in prophecy because everything in the Bible pertaining to prophecy has already been historically fulfilled. So one error leads to another error. The error of replacement theology then leads to a, a, a theology called preterism, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M, preterism, which, which basically states that all prophecy in the scripture has been fulfilled. And then there are various levels of preterism too. Some have been fulfilled 100%, others a little bit less, and others a little bit less than that. But every one of those positions does not look at Israel of today as being valid or relevant. Because the Bible that we read from Genesis to Revelation, maybe that's the problem. Maybe they're not reading all of the Bible. Maybe they're only reading what they want to believe or what they feel is a blessing to them. We have to read it all. Have you ever read something in the Bible that really makes you feel like, oh, you know, you're so convicted because, I mean, it makes you feel like you're a real sinner. What do you do, tear it out and say, I don't want to read that ever again. What it does is it speaks to my heart and says, hey, I got to get myself right here. Something I need to do. Then I thank God for that, that scripture. I thank God for that awakening that he loves me enough to tell me the truth. So then there, you know, getting back to the issue of prophecy, there, there, there is dominionism. There, there's a, a, a theology called dominion theology that's linked to something called Christian reconstructionism, that's linked to something called kingdom now theology, that's linked together with something called the new apostolic reformation. And, and, and many of these, if not all of them, are, connect, are connected with many word of faith churches today. And their goal, if, you've if you listen, dominion, reconstruction, kingdom now, apostolic reformation, their goal is to take back dominion of the world from Satan through social transformation. 
We have to turn everybody into Christians. Nations need to be led by God himself. Well, that's, that sounds really good. And when I read when Jesus comes back, that's going to happen. It's good to let the Lord bring that about and not us. As if to say, and I know, I know I've said this before, and, and again, it, it goes along with, the, with this theology, but, but what they're saying is we have to bring this world back to God, then Jesus will come. Then he'll come and set up his kingdom. But that is not what the Bible teaches. And then there are those who hold different millennial positions or pre, post, mid, trib, uh, tribulation positions. Those who hold to post-tribulation, post-millennial, amillennial, or no millennial prophetic positions, which are positions referring to the timing of the rapture and of the second coming of Christ, usually are forced to admit that they are studying prophecy primarily to prove the absurdity to them or even the lack of validity of the pre-tribulation rapture position. Which means to say that Jesus is going to come and, and rapture his church out of the earth before the great tribulation period or the, or the seven year tribulation period. And they don't study prophecy to see what God is doing. They study prophecy because they don't like something that some people hold to, which we hold to, and they want to disprove it. So they work on disproving it, but not really telling me what the Bible says. This is the reason why I've oftentimes said that when we study prophecy, we're not really studying a doctrine because in prophecy, some things haven't happened yet. Now the doctrine of salvation is really important and it's very clear that you can only come to the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. You can only come to God through that. And those doctrines are very clear. But prophecy, we're still learning and we're still growing. That's why I say we need to be students and, you know, if we keep studying, and certainly, you know, we're, we're getting better at it and we're understanding and we're, we're, we're being able to place names with countries and countries with names and whatnot. But, you know, I don't back on the, on the expert thing because, as I said, I believe it was on Sunday, you know, that experts, experts, uh, have oftentimes said, you know, I had, hold, I had held to this position until I discovered something else and I had to change my position, see? So we have to kind of realize that that can happen. But these people that only study prophecy to argue against something they don't like, they, I look at what, what it says in Romans 1 where it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Because there are things happening now that the Bible has been very clear are going to happen and, and have happened and will happen. But before we consider our text in Ezekiel 38, getting back to that, let, let me quickly give you a simple definition of what Bible prophecy is and its goal. The simple, basic definition of Bible prophecy is the God who created the heaven and the earth and all that is in them has provided valuable information in His Word concerning things to come. And he has done this predictively, lovingly, 
and accurately for these four reasons. Here's the first reason. You'll see it up here. To confirm and to validate his power, his rule, and his control over all things. In other words, to confirm and validate his sovereignty. How many times already in the book of Ezekiel have we seen the phrase, so that they may know that I am God? Quite a few times. So that they may know that I am God, that I am God who is in control of all things. It is something that we ourselves have to know all the time when we face certain things in front of us in the world as we're seeing <clears throat> the day of Jesus Christ approaching. That should keep our hearts stirred with the desire to know more from the Word of God of where we are today prophetically. How close are we to the coming of Jesus Christ? And if we're that close, then how am I supposed to live? Well, Paul says we're to live righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope of the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, to confirm and validate his power, rule, and control over all things. Secondly, it is to prepare and to equip not only his people for the last days, but also to prepare all of humanity. All of humanity should know. There are numbers of scriptures in the Old Testament where God is crying out to the world, look unto me, he says, all ye nations, not just Israel, all ye nations, look to me and come to me. That began actually for all of us that have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the moment that we took God's word and began to understand what it said when it spoke to our hearts and said, you're a sinner. And those who are separated from God will be separated for all eternity, except for the fact that God sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And a new life begins. A life that has the promise of eternity with God. So it's actually touched us all. That preparation that someone came and said to us, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? 
I don't know, over 40 some years of, of knowing the Lord and, and ministering the gospel to people. I've heard all kinds of things. You know, everybody's got an idea about it, you know, where they are with God. Most of the time, a lot, a lot of the times, it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I know God, and I know that, you know, if I live good, you know, my good will outweigh my bad. And I say, well, that's really interesting because that's not the Bible. That's man's idea of reaching God. There's no way you can save yourself by doing good things. The problem is that you're not good. That's the gospel. When that opened our eyes, what did we do? We ran to Jesus. Well, I think we ran. We might have walked fast, but some of us ran to run away from the world, run away from the evil we may have been in for so long. Thirdly, to bring the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to the lost and the hopeless. The purpose of prophecy is, is not only to prepare and equip others, uh, believers, and, and to confirm and validate God. It is, it is to bring the message of salvation. It is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost in these last days, to the ones who are hopeless in these last days. I don't know about you, but I can put no hope in governments or in politics or in anything that man does because man is so inept. I mean, overall, I mean, let's look, let's, I mean, look at our own country. We are such a divided nation today. But let, let me also let you know that this is a sign that Jesus Christ is close to coming. Jesus talked about it when he said that lawlessness would abound and the love of many would wax cold. That's what we see happening today. The fourth and probably the most important reason biblically is that all Israel will be saved and know and see their Messiah. And again, it has to come back to Israel. Bible prophecy is focused upon the people that God called to be his own. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob who would have his name changed from Yaakov to Israel. As we go on, let, let me just uh, remind you of this statement by God himself. I've quoted it a few times in the past few weeks. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. What do we see in that statement? The Lord confirming, authenticating his sovereignty. I am God, there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and, the, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. That's point one we made. The authenticating of his sovereignty, of his rule, of his control over all things. God is completely in control we can be safe in that understanding. 
We might not understand everything that's going on in the world, but I mean to tell you, every day something's happening in the world. Something that is connected to the Scriptures. If that doesn't stir our hearts, I don't know what will. I'd rather be stirred to pray and to seek after the face of God when all of these things are happening, you know, than to know who's going to win the NBA championship. Now, I know who won the NBA championship. I saw it. But it wasn't like that was the most important thing to me. Oh, if, you know, it could come and go. What matters is what happened that week in London. What happened this week? What happened today at an airport in Flint, Michigan? What happened yesterday? or the day before in Brussels, and in Paris, and in London. All of these things are connected to what's happening in the Scriptures. And we have to take that kind of an interest over and above everything else. Now, did I say you are not to take an interest in all these other things? Yeah, you be interested in what you want. Just make sure you're interested in what's pure and right and holy and just and true. Read Philippians chapter 4 tonight, that nice list that is given to us by Paul. Think on those things. One of the questions being asked in light of current events and the comparisons and contrasts between the Psalm uh, 83 and the Ezekiel 38 wars. Now remember, for those of you who haven't been with us, last couple of Sundays I've been uh, speaking on Psalm 83, and I know it, I know it was the Lord in preparation for our studies in Ezekiel 38. But Ezekiel, I'm, I'm sorry, Psalm 83 is essential for us to have, have, have studied because of the nations that were mentioned, their proximity to Israel, and what would lead after that? What would come after that, in other words? What would all that lead to? So there is this, this, uh, these questions now when we compare Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38. And, and the question would be, when do these wars take place? Because they're both talking about some kind of invasion, some kind of war. And both groups that are mentioned are having a war against Israel and it's taking place in the land of Israel. So when do these events occur? When do these wars take place? Does one come before the other, or do they take place at the same time? Well, obviously, they're going to be different because of the different names given in each, in, in each uh, chapter. But in the studies we did in Psalm 83, one conclusion we could make was that the nations involved were all directly or immediately adjacent to Israel, all of them, Egypt. Jordan, which, which encompasses uh, Moab and uh, Edom and, and, and Ammon, you know, and then, of course, there was um, uh, Gaza. Gaza is mentioned as far as the, Philist the Philistia and Tyre and Sidon, which now go up into the uh, Lebanon uh, area there, of course. Now, you know, we, we talked about Syria. We didn't mention Syria because it's not mentioned by name, even though Ashur is mentioned, but it's not mentioned by name as Syria because there is an Ashur and there is a Syria. 
but they're not mentioned by name in, 80, in Psalm 83 or in Ezekiel 38. I've talked a little bit about it. We're going to see more as we go along. But uh, that conclusion we made is all of these other nations are immediately adjacent to Israel. They're of Arab or near Arab origin and would constitute a confederacy of nations fighting a first-tier conflict uh, because of their proximity to and their joint hatred of Israel. Then the, the Psalm 83 war would be the stage-setting event to a second-tier conflict, that being the invasion and war of Gog and Magog and their allies with Israel, which is Ezekiel 38, where we are now. So in putting, perfect, uh, I'm sorry, putting prophetic pieces together, <clears throat> along with the current events taking place, it is significant that the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 and 37 which deal with the rebirth of the nation of Israel and its return to the land, would lead to another stage setting. That would be the conflicts that would usher in the Lord's promise of restoration and redemption of the Jewish people, uh, their complete land, and their Messiah. Now, I've oftentimes said that the land of Israel today is not only, well, it, you know, it's, it's the size of, of New Jersey. Uh, that little strip of land is Israel today. But what was promised to Israel by God back in the book of Genesis was from the, from the river Nile all the way to the river Euphrates. All of that land uh, belongs to Israel and it will belong to them. So that, that's God restoring them and redeeming uh, his, uh, his people and their complete land. But more importantly beyond that is that he would, they would be restored and would know their Messiah. And of course we know that their Messiah is Yeshua, Jesus Christ. So Psalm 83 may very well prepare the conditions for this Magog invasion to occur. It, it is certainly a prophecy that may occur almost at any moment. It can happen at any moment because we know that those nations, as we showed you on the charts and uh, the, and, and the uh, maps before, those nations surrounding, they're, they're all there. They're all there and they all hate Israel. It can happen at any moment. But in looking at our text in Ezekiel, by the way, that was all introduction. So we're finally to our text. But in looking at our text in Ezekiel, there are still some preconditions, prerequisites that must take place or exist in Israel before the Gog Magog invasion. So looking at verse seven now, because we've already dealt with, with the, the, the second tier nations, Gog, Magog, uh, Rus, uh, Meshech, Tubal, Persia, which is Iran, Ethiopia, which is Sudan, Libya, which takes Libya all the way through to Morocco, Northern uh, Africa, Gomer, the area of Turkey, uh, to Garma, into the uh, lower parts of, of the old Russian, uh, Soviet Russian Empire, and so on. Be thou prepared. Remember, this is, a, this is God speaking to Gog. Be thou prepared and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So Gog then is the leader of, of this confederacy and quite possibly as the chief 
prince or the prince of Rosh would be the one that would oversee all the other nations, guarding them, protecting them, providing for them. What would they be provided? Well, what do, what do the nations that are being uh, uh, equipped by Russia receive? Well, they're receiving arms, primarily. A lot of arms. Syria, Iran, the, uh, all the uh, former states that were part of the Soviet Union. They're very well armed, and I think I mentioned last week that uh, some of them have nuclear, nuclear capabilities. After many days, thou shalt be visited. Now, this is a very important thing to understand. Thou shalt be visited. This particular term is oftentimes used in the Old Testament because in the Hebrew, it, it is used as a statement of God coming to visit a, a, a nation with judgment. But in the context that we see it, it, it is still that, but you have to understand that, well, what, are they gonna get judged for something they haven't even started doing yet? What does that tell us about how God prepares us for judgment if we keep, our, if we keep ourselves against him and against the things that he has called us to do? In, in essence, he's setting us up for the judgment that we're gonna participate in anyway. Remember that God has declared the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. He already knows. These things have got to happen, particularly in, uh, as it pertains to Israel, that Israel has to go through these seven years of great tribulation, which all of this, by the way, as I mentioned, Psalm 83 and Ezekiel 38 is going to set up the seven-year period of tribulation, whether it's right before, immediately before, or at the very beginning of it, or a little bit into it, this is what it's going to do. So many days, after many days, I shall be visited, but then God gives us the time frame in the latter years. Thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword. That is speaking of Israel, as we said, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. Israel today is being populated and continuing to be populated by Jews who are living in all different countries. Many of Americans, Jews are, are going back to Israel to live. Many Russian Jews have gone back from all the corners of the earth. They're coming and, and uh, what they are doing is making Aliyah. They are coming back into the land as citizens of the state of Israel. Uh, against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. We've talked about that going back to chapter 36 and 37. But it is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to talk about that. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. Their ascent is that they're, even though they're coming from the north, and, and, and the main direction is coming from the north, there are those that are coming from, from the southwest, you know, the, uh, the northern African nations and some coming from the east, but primarily from the north. But it says that they're ascending. Well, remember that you always ascend to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. You never go, you know, it doesn't matter what direction you're coming from. You're always going up. So it is an ascent because that is God's uh, city and God's people and God's nation. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm, 
Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. So it's, there, there's just a, 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 a tremendous number of people coming against Israel. Now, what's made that possible is, as we've said, quite possibly, that the destruction of the nations that came against Israel in the Psalm 83 war have opened the door for them to come the way that they're coming. So it says in verse 10, thus, uh, thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind and thou shalt think an evil thought. Well, this is again the, uh, you know, the mindset of those that are leading some kind of a battle against Israel to have the worst sort of thoughts and, the, and these thoughts themselves really translate into the reasons why God is going to judge them from the very beginning. You know, even though he's already preparing them for judgment, he knows that they're going to come with this kind of evil in mind to destroy the nation of Israel. By the way, how many people that have tried to destroy Israel in the past have, have, have been successful? Well, not one of them, even though they got very close. And they got very close in our time. During uh, this, uh, the... Uh, Second World War, uh, we, all, we all know about the Holocaust. We all know about the six million plus Jews that were exterminated by Hitler. We know all about that. That was a pretty evil thought, wasn't it? There are even biblical references uh, to uh, this kind of thinking like the thoughts of Haman who was uh, wanting to destroy the Jews during the time of Esther and just destroy them all. That's, that's their thinking. And there have been many others. Thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I'm going to spend a little time on that. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely. All of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. To take a spoil and to take a prey. In other words, to go in, you, you ravage the, the whole people, you, you go in, you take what, uh, what is uh, valuable to them, and you take it and it becomes yours. To turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. And once again, I, I point you to the, the wealth of Israel today. Israel's not just a little tiny nation uh, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very wealthy nation itself in, in, in a lot of respects. So many people coming into the land and, and it's, it's becoming a burden in a sense to take care of them right now. But uh, nonetheless, so many technological advances, medical advances, all of those things are coming out of Israel today. So they, they have a wealth of not just uh, uh, technology, but they have a wealth of, of intellect as well. That can be taken too, and it can be stolen. I mean, all of those things. Nonetheless, uh, it says, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba and Dedan and the, the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So, 
I have a very little time to get through a lot, so bear with me. I'm, I'm going to put it into overdrive. One thing that is certainly the case today, and that is the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, that, that is certain. There's no Bible prophecy, as I said, without Israel. So that, prereq that prerequisite is already set. There is an Israel. So that prerequisite is set. But now God was speaking to Gog when he told this prince to prepare himself and all of his company. The nation mentions in verse, uh, the nations that were mentioned in verses two through six. Now, the visitation, as I said, mentioned in verse eight is the Lord's way of setting Gog and Magog and their allies for their judgment. The latter years mentioned can be narrowed to the times in which we see these preparations being made uh, such as, as today. But the target of their mustering together to form this uh, attack army is clearly against Israel. A land that once was desolate now is fruitful, a wasteland now blossoming in the desert. They are to come as a storm that engulfs the entire land. And out of all those nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38, they could muster up a pretty big army against Israel. Now, one of the preconditions or prerequisites that is in question, even though some consider it fulfilled, has to do with verse 11. So look at verse 11 in your Bibles. It says, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars or gates. Now let me just say that Israel is not a country of unwalled villages yet. It isn't. Now I'm not saying that, you know, that when you go over there that, oh, you know, there's just walls everywhere. There are walls. There is even a wall that, is, that, that was constructed to keep terrorism out. There are fences. There are checkpoints in Israel. There are fortifications because they are trying to stay safe. They're trying to continue to exist as a nation because they have enough. They have plenty of enemies that don't want them to exist. Now, the idea that Israel is dwelling securely because of their confidence in the uh, IDF or the Israeli Defense Forces uh, can be kind of presumptuous at best. Please don't think that I'm criticizing the IDF. On the contrary, I consider them to be the best, strongest, and most technologically advanced army in the Middle East and quite possibly in the world, second only to our military branches in the USA. But the phrase Ezekiel uses, dwell safely, those two words in verse 11, implies a security that is most likely achieved by victory over their surrounding enemies. That brings us back to Psalm 83. But it was also something that we saw back in Ezekiel 28. So turn to Ezekiel 28 and look at verses 24 through 26. And there shall be no more a pricking briar unto the house of Israel, nor any grieving thorn of all that are round about them that despise them. Now listen to the, the words that are used here. Of all that are round about them, immediately uh, adjacent to Israel, 
that despise them. I mean, they're despised by the very people that they live in the same nation with, the Palestinians. So then it says, and they shall know that I am the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, when I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob, and they shall dwell safely, there's that same phrase again, therein, and shall build houses and plant vineyards, yea, they shall dwell with confidence. When I have executed judgments upon all those that despise them, round about them, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God. Could this be speaking of the Psalm 83 conflict? Quite possibly so. And when those conditions are met, it would seem then that the prerequisite is accomplished for the Magog invasion. Therefore, Psalm 83 could be fulfilled at any time. Now, getting back to verse 11, let's go back and then just read verses 11, 12, and 13. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls. The understanding here is not like the understanding that we see when we go to Israel and visit there. They, they're, I mean, they're cautious. The words here are saying they don't feel like they have to be cautious anymore because now they're at peace. And remember what is going to be done at the beginning of the tribulation period, that there is going to be an antichrist who comes as, as some great world leader that is going to offer peace. So there is that particular setup there that we haven't even got to yet. We're, we're still way early on in, in getting to that particular time. So then it says, to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. And then Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? I want to say verse 13 till next week, but I'm going to talk about it here in just a moment because I want, to, I want you all to come back next week. But verse 12 provides us with the reason and the motivation for the invasion. Now we need to know that there's a reason for them wanting to attack Israel. It is to take a spoil, it is to take a prey. I've already mentioned the desire of Russia, and I mentioned this last week, the desire of Russia to have complete control of the natural gas of Israel. Not to mention that if Russia controlled the Middle East, she would have control over 65% of the world's oil supply. The countries in the European Union, along with Japan, probably only have about 100 days of oil reserves. That's not a lot for those countries. That's why the price of, of gas and oil is, is exorbitant in those countries. When I, went to, when I went to Europe in the early 90s, I couldn't believe how much it costs just for a liter of gas. It's got to be worse today than ever. Because that's why you see so many people riding bicycles all the time. But something else needs to be considered. And here it is. The mineral wealth in the Dead Sea alone 
is worth $4 trillion. The mineral wealth alone at the Dead Sea is worth $4 trillion, and that is primarily potash. And potash, which is used for fertilizer, is also used for making weapons. So go figure. We really need a lot of uh, fertilizer, so we want to go and get all the potash that we need. What, for fertilizer or for weapons? I think you can understand. So remember the words of Alexander the Great? I think he was the one that said, whoever controls the Middle East controls the world. It could have been Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, but either way, <laughs> that idea kind of remains, you know. Whoever controls the Middle East controls the world. If Alexander did say that, it brings us back to understand the history of that area, the crossroads of all the world, Mediterranean Sea, Europe, from the west, Turkey, the northern regions, the east, everything crosses right there at the Middle East. Whoever controls that controls everything. And the question we could begin to ask then is how close are the Gog Magog invaders to Israel today? How close are they? Well, I would have to say that they are right on the doorstep of Israel. They're right on the doorstep of Israel. I'm not even talking about ISIS. I'm talking about the nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38. They're right on the doorstep of Israel. Russia and Iran. If it is Rosh and Magog and all the others and Persia, they're both in Syria. Syria is right at the border with Israel. And, and Russia and Iran are both in Syria under the pretense. In other words, pretense means, you know, that comes from the word pretend. <laughs> but they're under the pretense of battling ISIS. Haven't we heard President Trump talk about the fact that he wants to work with Russia to battle ISIS? And Iran, Iran is, 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 is kind of in that same category with Russia, you know, being in Syria there to help the Syrians fight ISIS. Well, it's really quite interesting that this week, three days ago, a U.S. warplane shot down a Syrian jet that was bombing Syrian de Democratic forces. Now, the, Syri the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, are not the forces under uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president of the, the nation of Syria. They're actually the ones that the Syrian army is, is, is fighting against. There's a civil war in Syria. But the Syrian jet that was shot down by the U.S. warplane was bombing Syrian democratic forces, which were fighting ISIS forces. They were fighting ISIS at the time. These are the, 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 the SDF that are backed by the U.S. in fighting ISIS. Did you hear that Russia 
threatened the U.S. for shooting down one of Assad's planes? Hey, I thought we were all on the same team, right? Do you understand what's going on here? They're supposed to be fighting ISIS as well? No, Russia's interest is Syria. Letting Assad be Assad, letting him, letting him do what he wants to do. The only thing that that's going to lead to is what we talked about in Isaiah 17, which is what? The destruction of Damascus. That's also a part of the scenario that we're talking about in these chapters 38 and 39. So do you see the pretense then? They're pretending to be on our side to fight ISIS. But they're not. They're supplying Syria. Iran supplying Syria. So that's the reality. Before we begin our study, to, we, before we bring our study to a close uh, tonight, let me just mention that Russia has a relatively large Muslim population, not to mention the states that were previously a part of the Soviet Union. In Russia, 14% of the people are of Muslim minorities, 14%. Now, to put that into perspective, in the USA, the percentage of Muslims in, in the US is 2.11%. In Russia, there's 14. So it's a tremendously large Muslim population in Russia. Now, Russia is primarily Russian Orthodox, but the reality of that is that there are many people who may have been born and baptized in the Russian Orthodox Church, some Catholics, some others, uh, different denominations, but the, their main religion today is atheism. And that speaks for a lot of probably most of Europe today, whereas Europe was primarily Roman Catholic or, you know, in some places uh, like in, in England, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian or whatever. You go to England today and uh, churches have closed down and become mosques and other things, car washes, whatnot. So the point I'm trying to make with this is that Rush or Rosh, uh, Magog, Meshech, Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and the House of Tagarma, most, if not all, translate today to Muslim nations. The nations of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan are all primarily Muslim. You, you, you end with that little S-T-A-N at the end of, of their name, and that, I, I was looking at their flags today. The majority of their flags have the crescent moon on them. We talked about the crescent moon last time. So the factor, or that factor, I should say, plays a major part in the formation of the nations that are confederate against Israel. Now, none of these nations, along with the Psalm 83 nations, would want Israel to prosper in any way. Why, why should they have the cattle and all the goods? Why should they have the silver and all the gold? You know, their blindness, their blindness due to their hatred of the Jewish people will be judged greatly by the Lord. But we're going to speak more about this as we continue on in chapters 38 and 39. I mentioned verse 13. We're going to start here next time. But verse 13 contains the reference, possibly, 
of a nation not mentioned by name. Only a description is given. It says in verse 13, all the young lions thereof. Now I want to begin here next time and bring up the possibility that this may be a reference to the United States of America. Who hasn't asked the question, is America mentioned in the Bible? Or does America play a role in Bible prophecy? So you've got to be here next time if you want to know as we look into those questions and more. I want to leave you with this passage, though, from the book of Jeremiah. And then I, and then I want to, it's, it's not going to be up here, but right after that I want to turn to one more passage, then we'll, we'll close our study. Jeremiah 23. My great concern is how this translates not only from the shepherds of Israel to the shepherds of the church, how it can affect us today as well. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you. There's that phrase, I will visit upon you. The evil of your doings, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries whither I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. Do you see the phrase? Dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. That is as clear and as plain as God can make it about all the things that we've talked about tonight and all the things that we'll continue to talk about as we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39. The New Testament passage that I want to read to you, and it's not going to be up here, but I want you to turn there and we'll close with this. I said that already, didn't I? Okay, we'll close with this. Second Peter, chapter three, verse nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. 
the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word and reading and studying it. We thank you for your care and your concern for your people, Israel, and your people, the church. Father, I pray that we will be faithful in doing that which you have called us to do, which is to, to preach your word, to be ready in season and, in season and out of season. And Lord, to, to give forth the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of your word. I pray, Father, that we continue to do that. That you will strengthen us in our understanding, Lord, that you'll keep us looking up so that our redemption, which draws nigh, will come on that glorious day. And I pray that none will miss out on the blessing that you want to give to your people. Thank you so much for the opportunity tonight to serve you in spirit and truth, to worship you in spirit and truth, to honor you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Shall we stand? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a good rest of this week. May God's blessings be yours. May his best always be yours. And may he continue to lead you and guide you into all of his truth. After we sing a song of dismissal, when, if you need prayer, we'll have some people up here in front to pray for you. So you're welcome to come. So have a good evening. Make sure that you encourage each other as you leave here today in the love of the, and the mercy and the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's sing that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 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 glory